Um, last week we got to uh, thank a few people who serve in our church in significant ways and um, we want to continually make sure we're, we're thanking those who serve and we are grateful for um, the many d- different gifts that God has given to us and I'm aware that um, personally, I've got six kids and two of whom are no longer in children's ministry, but all of whom have gone through our children's ministry. And um, I am grateful for the gift that our children's ministry is to us and to our church. Our children are really the next generation. They are the future. And it's critical that we instruct them about who God is and who they are if we hope for them to know God, to love God, to serve God as adults. And I'm grateful that We have so many committed teachers and helpers that are um, focused on doing just that, not just keeping our kids safe, but also instructing our kids in the things of the ways of the Lord and introducing them not only to their need for God, but the mercy and grace of God. So thanks to all those who serve in that way. Well, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. If I get one of the ushers actually to go out in the lobby, let folks know we're getting started, that'd be great. (laughs) There you go. Perfect. Look at that. Excellent. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, but before we read the scripture, I was just affected this past week as I was reading about um, human trafficking. That's not a, a fun topic to read about. It's a scary, frightening topic to read about, really, and um, thankfully, Nowadays, the, the issues, the topics of human trafficking has gotten a lot more press than it used to, and people are much more aware of the horror that is human trafficking, and it's come to light that not only do people traffic in adults, but there is child trafficking as well, and it's not just some distant land, but it also happens in our country. And it's, it's hard to, to pin down facts and figures because it's such a shady thing that happens, but um, it's at least clear that thousands of children in our own country every year are victims of child trafficking. People who traffic them, they use threats, they use intimidation, they use gross manipulation, extreme violence to control and force children to do their bidding. And it's a life of sheer torment for the children living in terror, living in fear for their lives, being forced to do things they should, children should never do. And we're rightly disgusted and outraged at, at such crimes against humanity, especially for those who are most defenseless in our midst. So imagine if a clearly documented confessed even, child trafficker, imagine if they are convicted and they go before a judge and the judge is getting ready to sentence them and the child trafficker goes to the judge and he says, judge, I'm very sorry for what I've done and they seem to be genuinely sorry for what they've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. I'll never engage in that behavior again. I'm committed to changing. I understand how heinous my past has been. I'm guilty, but judge, I ask you for mercy. And then imagine that this happened in Greenville County and that the Greenville County judge let your neighbor off who was the child trafficker. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about someone like that living next to you or being your neighbor, being completely guilty and let let go just because he asked for mercy? At the same time, how, how would you feel if your other next-door neighbor, he goes and appears in the same courtroom, and this next-door neighbor you have, he's a better guy than you. He, he, he is actually upright. You know, not only does he mow his lawn perfectly and edge it, and everything looks perfect in his house, but he does everything well, and he loans things to you when you need them, and he helps you out around the house, and he's always serving and caring, and, and, and he's, he's an example of good morals and good behavior, and he's upright, and he's... He's, he's generous and he gives regularly of everything that he has and everybody around him knows what a great guy this is and yet imagine that he goes to court for some minor offense or seemingly minor offense and that same exact judge who lets your other neighbor go who's the human trafficker or child trafficker, he now prosecutes 
This upright man, imagine that. You would, you would rightly, or at least you should rightly, feel moral outrage. You should struggle with both of those scenarios because we rightly believe in the concept of justice. But that is the kind of struggle, that's the kind of tension that we are meant to experience as we read the parable that we're about to read, that Jesus taught us. It's the kind of struggle, the kind of tension, the kind of shock that Jesus meant to induce in his hearers. So let's read the parable with with those scenarios in mind, applying those scenarios that are not easy to relate back, but so these modern scenarios, the child trafficker, the upright neighbor, let's apply those to these two categories as we're listening of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So let's read God's holy inspired word together. Luke 18, verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, help us relate to this parable. God, help us relate to this parable not just as if it was a modern day parable about child traffickers and good neighbors, Lord, but help us relate to this parable personally. God, I pray that you would enable us to apply this parable to our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives. Father, I pray that we would hear the words of Jesus for ourselves and that we would respond in humility. God, I pray that you give me grace as I speak. I pray that you give grace to everyone who hears. May we all have ears to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what kind of person is it that's justified before God? What makes a person commendable before God? How can a person be accepted by God and approach his presence? Those are just some of the questions that this parable addresses. You know, is it social status? Is it moral purity, maybe? Is it keeping the law? Is it religious duties that make us acceptable before God? What about, on the other hand, if we lack morals or inherent value, what does that do for our ability to approach God? Is there any hope for us to be made right, to be made clean? Is there any hope for us not to receive what we deserve if we are that child trafficker? What if we believe, though, as Christians, that we believe that we've received God's mercy for ourselves, but yet we continue to mess up? How can we approach God? Do we deserve to approach God? Shouldn't we be a little nervous if we're continually failing as Christians? Shouldn't we be a little worried about our salvation? Shouldn't we be concerned? Should we be despairing? Should we lack confidence that we'll actually go home to be with God? All of these kinds of questions are the kinds of questions that this parable addresses, that this parable answers for us. It's meant to actually make us think. It's meant to make us relate this to ourselves. And Jesus, essentially, in this parable, he's laying out two different kinds of men, or really two different kinds of approaches. On the one hand, you have this this Pharisee who's over here praying, God, thank you, thank you that I'm not like other men. And on the other hand, it says this, this, this tax collector, he stood far off. He's way away from the altar, and he is saying, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. He, he is putting his, his head down. He is lowly. And there are two kinds of people, and, and really it's meant to represent two kinds of approaches towards God that all of humanity takes, that we can take, or try to take at least. We can either try to take the approach of the Pharisee and approach God based on our own merit, based on our own confidence, our own abilities, our own righteousness. And in fact, a lot of people do that. Even as Christians, we can tend to do that. Or we can approach God like the tax collector who approached him not on the basis of his own merit, but on the basis of, of God's mercy. Really, it's, it's relevant to us today, and there's, there's two ways to approach God. There's two ways that we can try to draw near to God that this parable speaks to. And the first way is that we can try, and the emphasis there is on try, we can try to approach God like the Pharisee over here saying, God, thank you, thank you that I'm not like other men. We can try to approach God based on our own merits. You know, Jesus describes these two men, they go up in the temple to pray. It was, there was a couple different prescribed times for prayer during the day and during those times they would come and they would bring offerings to God they would sacrifices would be made and people would pray and be a part of corporate worship and also private prayer and what these men are doing is they're going up and they're having a time of of public prayer but for us today the first character on the stage that we see it's the Pharisee now often the problem is for us to relate to this parable is that we 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 know that Pharisees are bad guys in the Bible right we read the New Testament, we know that, oh, the Pharisees, those are the bad guys, and we shouldn't be like the Pharisees. The problem is, is that that's not how people in that day would have responded to Pharisees. Pharisees weren't seen as the bad guys. Pharisees were the good guys. They were the morally upright, pure neighbors of yours who did everything perfect and you wanted to be like. Those were the neighbors who not only helped you out with your home improvement projects, but they loaned you the tools. They didn't just do that, but they had you over for dinner, and they were constantly giving to like World Vision or whatever, or all those different programs. And so these were the people who were the model citizens, and they were, they were always praying. They were going to church a lot. They were doing all the right things. They were good people. They were respectable people. People looked up to them and for good cause. They tried their hardest to please God by their behavior. They were well respected in that culture. So when Jesus begins this parable speaking about the Pharisee, don't read it with 21st century eyes now that you look back and say, okay, Pharisees, those are the the legalists and the hypocrites. Yeah, but they didn't know it. They didn't know they were the legalists and the hypocrites, just like we don't know we're the legalists and hypocrites. What legalist knows they're a legalist and remains that way, right? What hypocrite thinks, I really want to be a hypocrite? I've never met a hypocrite who really wanted to be a hypocrite. I've not met liars and deceivers. I've met people who are manipulators who pretended to be something to use people, but they weren't really happy. They knew they were hypocrites. This Pharisee had no idea he was well respected, and so he goes in and he stands to pray like people then normally did. It was very common. They would go in and stand when they prayed, and they would also lift up their eyes. It wasn't a proud thing. It was because that's where God was, and so they would stand. And so we see this Pharisee, and he's over standing by himself. And the connotation is that he's standing near the presence of the God, of God. He's standing near to the altar, near the place where sacrifices are made. Why? Because he feels he has a right to come near to stand before God and he's standing to himself and he prays something and he prays something that seems actually to begin with kind of okay. He begins though a little too boldly to pray to God and at first his prayer seems like it might be almost a good one because doesn't he begin his prayer with thanksgiving, right? After all he says, God, thank you. You know, don't imagine him saying it all pious. Imagine him saying, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not like other men. You ever have a prayer like that, kind of? God, thank you that I'm not like I used to be. God, thank you that I'm not a drug dealer. Thank you, God, that I'm not a, I'm not a pimp, that I'm not a child trafficker. God, thank you that I'm not whatever you, you think of. He thanks God that he's, he's not a sinner. He says, God, thank you that I'm not living an immoral lifestyle. Thank you, that, God, that, thank you, God, that I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not an adulterer. Thank you that I'm not unjust. And robbing people, that I'm not extorting them for money. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this 
this tax collector over here. And at first, it seems like kind of an okay prayer. After all, tax collectors, those were considered the worst of the worst in that society. And, but what he's doing is this Pharisee is recounting in his prayer just how righteous he is in comparison to other people. But before you go and think that you're never like that Pharisee, just think for a moment. Have you ever, have you ever thought, well, I'm really glad I don't act like that guy or that girl. I'm really glad I don't do that. I'm really glad I'm not as either sinful or I'm really glad I'm not as self-righteous as that person. And what are you doing? You're just like the Pharisee, right? I'm glad I'm not a legalist like that person. How sinful that is. Then we're standing up like the Pharisee. The Pharisee, he, he's mentioning that he's more righteous than other people, but he doesn't just mention that. He, he also says that he does a lot of good godly things. He doesn't just put off ungodly works. He doesn't just say, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other men, that I'm not an adulterer, and that's really good, right? We should be grateful that we're not adulterers or unjust or extortioners, but he doesn't just do that. He says, thank you, God, that, that I do other things too. He says, God, I... I I fast twice a week. I don't know about you, but I don't fast twice a week. I can't remember the last time I fasted, honestly. That's embarrassing. You know, the law called for fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement, but this Pharisee, he went above and beyond. He fasted twice a week. Not only did he fast twice a week, it says, I give tithes of all that I get. See, the law required ties of certain crops and certain things, but this guy, he was concerned that everything he got, everything that was in, he improved upon, that maybe he was planting mint in the garden, or maybe he was planting vegetables in the garden, any proceeds, anything that he got, he would tithe because he really wanted to make sure he's pleasing God. Because it's, it's a biblical principle to give of what we've been given, and give the first fruits of what we've been given. So he makes sure that everything, not just what the Bible requires, but everything that he gets, he tithes. He was rigorous about making sure that he gave to God from every area of his life. You know, whether that was a free birthday gift or maybe it was a coffee from Starbucks or whatever. And he, he was, they didn't have Starbucks back then, but I don't, I don't know what they would have been called. But he gave of everything. He's a model citizen. He is your model citizen next door. And so you're thinking, there's nothing wrong with this guy. At least that's how they would have been thinking about him then when Jesus is telling a story. And everybody's thinking, okay, that's good. He's a good guy. This must be an example. He gives of everything. That's good. He not only gives of everything, but he fasts twice a week. Okay, that's good. Fasting is good. And obeying the law is good. And not being an adulterer, an extorter, that's good. But in contrast, we see a very different picture in this tax collector. Or for us, think of him as a child trafficker. That'll help you get in the same mindset that the Jews would have had about tax collectors. And so Jesus is showing us that the second way that we can approach God, that not, not we can try, but we can actually approach God based on his mercy. We can approach God based on his mercy. Look down at verse 13. It begins with, but the tax collector. But the tax collector, this guy standing far off, this tax collector, He's an awful person. And everybody hearing it back then would have been, ooh, a tax collector. You know, we, we don't think of them that way. But imagine that a child trafficker is sitting right here in our midst and he's been let go. And everybody in the room knows that he's a child trafficker. How would you relate to him? How would you think of him? Would you be thinking, I hope that guy gets off. I hope he goes scot-free. I hope when he pleads to God for mercy that that he doesn't get what he deserves. Do you, do you, would you feel that way? Jesus introduces us to this man, and even if the listener back then expected that the Pharisee might be something off with him because he's a little pious, they would never have expected the tax collector to be the hero. There's no way they would have thought of him as a potential good guy in the story. They weren't like the tax collectors today. When we think of tax collectors, we might think of the IRS. Well, they aren't working for a foreign government, even though they're working for our government that we don't like sometimes. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to be honest. They're trying to help provide for the common good, supposedly. And um, if you have a neighbor that works for the IRS, you won't think anything less of him than you might somebody else who works for another company, or at least you shouldn't. 
But in Jewish culture, their profession was synonymous with the worst kind of sinners. In fact, in Luke, earlier in Luke, Luke 5, 30, when the religious leaders of Jesus' day, when they accused Jesus, they, they complained that he hung out with two kinds of people that were very closely associated. It was tax collectors and sinners. They said, and the Pharisees in Luke 5.30 and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, and here's what they grumbled, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They were horrible people. They'd earned the reputation. They'd done bad things. The occupying Roman troops and Roman government, they, they were provided for through the taxes that were raised from the people. And what the Romans would do, they were very smart. They would employ locals who knew the community, who knew everybody in town, who knew what people made, knew what people did, um, and, and, and were familiar with everyone. They would employ these locals to betray their own townspeople and narc on them and tell them how much everybody owed and, and how much everybody made. And, and, and they were like Mrs. Kravitz, Back in the old days, that's a really old reference, sorry about that. Um, They were like the nosy neighbor next door that reported on you to the government and made sure that you paid taxes. But they were worse than that because they made their living, they profited off of your misfortune and they would actually hike up the taxes so that they could get more. And the Romans knew that. They were profiteering off of the backs of their fellow citizens. They were traitors against their own people. They enabled the Roman government to stay in power, and they sustained them, at least indirectly, supporting the oppression of their own people. They were notorious. They became rich by, by stealing, basically, from their neighbors. They were dishonest. They lied. They had their neighbors beaten by the Roman troops. They walked this tightrope, lying to Romans about how much they kept, and then lying to the citizens about how much they owed. And it was impossible for you to refuse to pay the tax collector because you knew that what they would do is they would go get the local Roman legion and bring them to your house. They might conscript your children or they might beat you. Tax collectors were leeches back then. They were the combination of the worst of traits. They were were intentional liars. They were deceivers. They were traitors. They were unjust thieves. They were taking from everyone else for their own benefit. Maybe another way of looking at them would be, I don't know, a loan shark or a pimp. These were bad guys. And this tax collector, though, he seems to be experiencing a great deal of conviction. I wonder how we would feel about that if somebody like that was in our midst. He, He stands far off. He doesn't stand near to the altar. He approaches God from a distance, it's a sign that he doesn't even feel worthy to come near the throne of grace. He doesn't feel worthy to come near to where sacrifices are made. He's not worthy to come near to the altar. He's standing afar off. Not only that, he's, he's not only just standing afar off, he's, he's got his head down, which would not have been a normal posture. For us today, we put our head down, close our eyes, and we pray. They would have had their eyes up. He's putting his head down. He's ashamed. He's embarrassed. He's standing far off. He's not worthy. And he's doing something that only women typically would do in that culture that when they were mourning they would beat their chests and cry out and but it was seen as very unmanly it was seen as very lowly and humiliating he was embarrassing himself he was making a spectacle of himself he was beating his chest and then there's his prayer his prayer wasn't very impressive at all this is really short compared to the pharisees prayer the pharisees prayer was pretty long it was full of all kinds of accolades this Tax collector's prayer is, is very, very short. It's one of just simple humility, and it and really could have been translated. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a definite article there in the original language. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, but the thing is, is that be merciful to me, the, the literal translation for that would be be propitiated to me, or be propitious to me. Be God create atonement for me be merciful to me atone for me is really the language that he's using god atone for me create an atonement for me lord would you propitiate me god let your anger be removed from me in the words for mercy it's it's really along the same lines where the apostle paul talks about all throughout and it's interesting that luke is writing this 
really demonstrating where Paul got his theology was Jesus. Talking about the atoning sacrifice of Christ, how Christ was a propitiation. He was the one who made God merciful towards us. And this, this tax collector's plea for mercy wasn't based on his own performance. It was the opposite. And, and, and really, the, the language he uses, it's the exact same language that King David used. You remember King David's sins, or at least some of his sins, some of the more egregious sins? This one who was a man after God's own heart, he goes and he sees the wife of Uriah, and he sees her bathing, he should have looked away, and yet he lusts after her, and he calls this woman to come, and he commits adultery with her, he tries to cover it up, he, he, he tries to concoct a way to have her husband killed when he can't hide it, and, and really he commits two of the most heinous crimes in that day, adultery and murder, and he's the king, he's supposed to set an example, yet In Psalm 51, David prayed to God. And David said the same thing. He said, God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. And so this tax collector here, he asks for mercy because he is the sinner. That's how he sees himself. Not just because he's a sinner, but God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He knows he's in a class of his own. He's, he's in a really bad sense. He's, he's in a bad way with my Canadian friends. I have a, a Canadian friend, Pat. He, he, he would call people like that a dirty rotter. Uh, it's a hard <laughs> phrase to relate to, but it's really appropriate. He's, he's a dirty rotter. He's, he's an awful guy. And yet he can only throw himself on God's mercy. Imagine if you're hearing that in Jesus' day and you're hearing about this tax collector. Or maybe today, this child trafficker, this loan shark, this pimp, whatever. You would be tempted at least to think, I hope they get what they deserve. You ever thought that about people? You know, I I do that in just minor ways when I'm flying down the road, going too fast, and some guy goes even faster than me, cuts me off, and then flies by, and then a few miles down the road, I see these pulled over by a cop. You ever have this feeling? You're like, I'm glad he got what he deserved, the jerk. Do you ever feel that way? That's a really minor example, but I think we feel that way all the time. We're glad when people get what they deserve as long as it's not us. And we hope that people get what they deserve as long as it's not you and I who get what we deserve. You ever have those thoughts, how could they do that? How could they? I can't believe they did that. I think that's the reaction that the people in Jesus' day would have had, and they're they're probably hoping, you know, I'm, I hope that tax collector gets what he deserves. Of course he's over there asking God for mercy. But he should know better because our laws require him to make restitution first before he even, even asks for mercy. Our laws require that not only he makes restitution, but he does it for a certain period of time before you even let him in the temple. He shouldn't even be here in the first place. But then Jesus shocks everyone. He doesn't require the, fair, the, the tax collector to jump through all these hoops remarkably this dirty rotter who hadn't done anything good who hadn't cleaned his life up yet he was he was only acknowledging his sinfulness and humbly asking for mercy look down at verse 14 look look at what jesus says jesus says here's this good guy here's this bad guy but this bad guy asked for mercy and look at verse 14 he says i tell you this man this bad guy This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. How would you have reacted to that? Jesus said he he was counted as just or righteous before God. He's, He's acquitted before God. This is a legal kind of forensic language that he's using. This man went down to his house justified, legally right before God. Legally, he went away from God's presence, but he was justified before God. He was made righteous before God. All just because he responded to conviction from God and he sought to humble himself and he cried out to God for mercy. The Pharisees' problem was that 
He wasn't grateful to God for what he'd done. He, he wasn't praying. The Pharisee wasn't praying, God, thank you that you have changed me. God, that you've made it so I'm no longer like other men. God, and I, he didn't pray that. He was essentially saying, God, you've got a really great catch in me. God, you know, thank you that I'm such a great person. And his prayers really reflected his attitude that God basically got this great deal. And God was lucky to have the Pharisee on his own team. He prayed as if he was deserving for God to be gracious towards him. Do you you ever pray like that? Maybe you think you don't. How about when your prayers don't get answered the way you think they should, and you're angry with God? Because you've been doing pretty good. You've been tithing. You've been giving to the people. You've been nice. You've been serving. You've been sacrificing. You've even been humble. You've been praying. You've been reading your Bible. You've been doing all these good things. And those are good things. By the way, those are really good things. Those are good means of God's grace. But if you've been doing all those things and then you've been praying to God and your prayers are frustrated or your prayers don't get answered the way you think they should get answered, our hearts are revealed about how we're approaching God if we are angry with God when we don't get what we believe we deserve. I think a lot of us are like this Pharisee, right? He prays as if he deserves God's favor. And I hate to say it, but I I feel like that sometimes too. But in contrast to this tax collector, this Pharisee with all his holy living, he was not justified. That should be a little shocking. He was a good guy. He was a good example. But he wasn't justified by his holy living. And, and, And when Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, standing far off, one home justified, rather than the other? What he's saying is the Pharisee was not justified. He went home condemned. He stood in God's presence and walked away condemned. He prayed to God. He did all the right things. And he walked away. Maybe put it in more modern language. He walked away and he was not saved. He was fooled and thinking he was right before God, but he was damned. That's the language we're seeing. You know, this modern equivalent to whatever you think is the worst kind of behavior, this tax collector, maybe you think of certain categories of sin as the worst kinds of sin. Maybe you, maybe you have this kind of hierarchy of sins in your life, in your mind. So maybe for him, he's, he's a homosexual or a crack dealer, or child trafficker. This man walks away justified. He was saved. He was saved by God's mercy, by God's grace. And yet the upstanding church member, the deacon, the one who wore a suit every day, the one who looked good and did good, he was not. And that that parable should make us stop. It should surprise us, it should make us think, it should, it should make us at least reflect on our own lives. Why? Because you know what? The, that Pharisee did not know that he was that proud. He was deceived. You think if he knew that he wasn't justified that he still would have been confident in his own justification? I don't think so. Nobody in their right mind who's at least trying to be religious, nobody today who's living legalistic, who's pretending and playing church, nobody today would would think, okay, um, I'm really guilty, but I'm okay with that. That's that's absurd. This parable's meant for us to evaluate our own hearts and the source of our confidence. It's meant to evaluate where our confidence is in approaching God. It's meant for us to evaluate who we're trusting in or what we're trusting in. It's meant for us to see that what really commends a person to God has nothing to do with our right actions. And that should be hope-giving. Maybe you don't struggle. This, is, this parable is not told to everybody doesn't struggle with self-righteousness in the same way. I think we're all tempted at least, though. But maybe you're not struggling with self-righteousness, and then how should you respond? Well, this parable should at least cause you to be very, very grateful and worship God. But I think that the main idea that we're all intended to see from this parable, it's, it's really that approaching God justified, 
It requires seeking his mercy alone instead of trusting in ourselves. Do, do you want to be justified before God? Here's what it requires. It, it requires... It requires seeking his mercy alone instead of trusting in yourself. You see, what commends a person to God's humble repentance and faith that looks to God alone for mercy. Jesus closes his parable. Look down your Bibles, if you will. It says, for everyone. That's inclusive language, isn't it? Everyone, this Pharisee's over here, and he says, everyone who does what? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, will be laid low. But on the other hand, everyone who postures himself humbly, everybody who humbles himself before God will be exalted. He was confronting something very serious in this parable. He was confronting those who trusted themselves that they were righteous. That's what it says in verse nine. You know, why was Jesus confronting those who thought they were righteous in their actions? Didn't he want people to live righteously? Doesn't he want you and I to live righteously? Isn't it good that we would try to live righteous lives? After all, there's lots of commands in the Bible about how to live godly, upright lives. So is Jesus just being unkind here? Well, obviously the answer is no. We weren't meant, though, to rely on our own righteousness. The law was never meant so that we'd rely on the law. The law was meant to point us to our need for God. And now... When we respond to God and, and live in and, and concert or in keeping with how we've been called, it's, it's meant to be an act of worship to God and gratefulness to God for mercy. You know, every part of us, every part of you and I has been so affected by sin that prior to God redeeming us and rescue us, there is no way that any of us can earn God's favor or righteousness. Because everything we do is, is what the old reformers used to say, was shot through with sin, so to speak. Everything that we do, apart from God's grace, has been affected by sin, so permeated by sin that, that, that it, has, it stinks before God. It doesn't have merit. So if Jesus is truly loving, he will confront. He does confront. He did confront anyone who trusts in their own merit. Why? Because trusting in your own merit only leads you to hell. It only leads you away from God to being fooled and self-deceived. And so Jesus very lovingly tells this parable to these people and he gives this parable to confront us because it's easy for us to slip into trusting ourselves, thinking that we're righteous and it can take a lot of subtle forms too, you know? When you're doing pretty good, let me ask you, when you're doing pretty good at obeying the commands of God, when you're reading your Bible regularly, when you're praying, when you're being kind to your family, when you're giving regularly to church, are you ever tempted to trust in yourself? Do you feel better about yourself when you're doing well? Are you more confident to come into God's presence when you are performing well? Who are you tempted to look down on? That's how the parable opens. Before before Jesus tells the parable, Luke sets it up and he says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous who did what? Who looked on others with contempt. You ever, you ever have any contempt towards others? Who you tempted to look down on, even in your heart, even if it's not outward? I don't want you to, don't, don't say it out loud, please. Are you tempted to look down on people who speak differently or aren't as smart as you? Are you tempted to look down on people who Maybe you're from another country or they're immigrants or are you tempted to look down on people with different political ideologies? That's a really touchy one right now, by the way. You know, it'd be easy for you to have contempt if you see people voting for a third-party candidate because, you know, you think that they're wasting their vote, right? And you think that they're keeping your preferred candidate from getting in office. I want to provoke you if you, if you feel that way. Or maybe you're voting for a third-party candidate in the upcoming election, and you might have some form of contempt for those who are voting for either one of the two primary candidates because you think that neither one of them is godly, and so how in the world can any self-respecting Christian ever do that? Or maybe you feel like my candidate's the only reasonable candidate for a Christian to have, and anybody who disagrees with me cannot really be truly Christian or Christ-like, and they're just deceived and dumb. You ever have those thoughts? Come on. 
I don't care where you stand. You're, you're going to be tempted to have contempt. Right now, our nation is so divided. Why? Because we're proud. Because we all think we know best. We all think that we merit something. We all think that somehow our perspective merits favor before God and it's so much better and so God will be pleased and righteousness will be done if only people would think like we think. Or maybe, how do you feel when you encounter unbelievers who lie and cheat or been abusers? Do you look down on them with contempt? Or are you aware of God's mercy and grace so much that you think, oh, God, help me rescue, help me rescue them. They're a liar, they're a cheater, they're a spouse abuser. Lord, I pray for mercy for them. How about your professing homosexual coworker or neighbor? Are you praying for them that God would have mercy? How about Christians who disagree with you on areas of doctrine that are important to you? And you think, how in the world can you be a Christian and believe like that? Or do you have compassion on them and say, God, Lord, I only believe what I believe the Bible says because you've enabled me to, because of your mercy. So God, I'm gonna pray for them, Lord. I'm gonna pray that, that Lord, you would be merciful to them. And Lord, if I'm wrong in any way, Lord, would you reveal that too? You know, I think in this town, it's also easy to, like I said at the beginning, view people who are obviously, from our perspective, self-righteous and, and look down on them with contempt. You know? Oh, those legalists. You know, I, I don't think they want to be legalists. You know? Oh, they're hypocrites. Oh, they're just living for externalism. They're all about living on the outside, but not what's truly going on in the heart. And then we can suddenly think, but, but not me. That's not me. I'm... Righteous, because I understand it's all about issues of my heart. Well, you, you might be like the Pharisee then. So I think we're all tempted to trust in ourselves and look down on others with contempt. So we all need to hear this parable from Jesus, don't we? If you take pride in yourselves, if we take pride in ourselves, we exalt ourselves above others, then here's what Jesus says. God will humble us. He will lay us low. If you exalt yourself, you're going to be laid low. That's not a good thing. It's not talking about um, if, if, if you exalt yourself, then God's going to make you a humble person. No. To be humbled is to be put down, to be made low, to be humiliated. But here's the other message of the parables, that God welcomes lost sinners. That God welcomes people who don't have it together he welcomes tax collectors, he welcomes loan sharks and drug dealers and trial traffickers or whatever the worst category of person is in your mind. If they come to him humbly, repenting and crying out to God for mercy. And here's the really good news. God even welcomes ugly Pharisees like me and you who think that they're righteous and stink before God if you cry out to him for mercy. The good news is God saves everyone who genuinely repents even before they clean themselves up fully. That's really good news, right? You see, this, this tax collector, he had not cleaned himself up fully. He hadn't paid recompense. He hadn't done anything. He comes in and he cries out for mercy. He's not even saying, God, I've, I've made payment here. I've done what the law requires. I've, I've restored. I've made restitution seven times. He, he's not saying, he's saying, God, just have mercy on me, the sinner. He's not cleaned his life up fully yet. And that's good news because you know what? I, I, when I repented before God and saw the error of my ways in my youth and I saw what a deceiver, manipulator, liar I was and, and addicted to alcohol, I, I wasn't fully changed when I realized that I needed to repent. And, and I hadn't fully cleaned myself up. And here's the thing, I still haven't fully cleaned myself up. Now, I'm not... I'm no longer deceiving and lying. I'm no longer addicted to alcohol. But you know what? I've got lots of other problems. And you know what? For all of us, we might deceive ourselves thinking that we're basically clean, but you're not. None of us have fully cleaned ourselves up. And it's really good news. Why? That God receives people who have not fully cleaned themselves up who ask him for mercy. Mercy. 
until we go to be with God, none of us will ever be able to fully clean ourselves up. All of us need to hear this parable. And so what we can trust in is the fact that God does propitiate. He does atone for. He does justify. But not because of our actions. Like this tax collector, he went home. He could rest easy because he was justified. Not because of his actions. And what Jesus was saying is that you and I, too, we can go home today justified, not because of our actions, but because we're trusting in the one who justifies us. We're trusting in the one who propitiates for us. We're trusting in the one who atones for us. Ironically, confidence in ourselves leads to condemnation in this life and the life to come. Do you ever feel really bad when you sin? Well, that can be good if it's conviction and you respond and you receive God's mercy and then you experience the freedom and joy of forgiveness. But it can be bad if you take conviction and you turn it into something that's called condemnation. If you continue to feel guilty no matter what or feel like you, you must make atonement or you feel like there's no way that God can accept you You know, when I'm feeling condemned, it's most often because I'm thinking that my salvation relies on my ability to keep it. And so when I'm not doing well, I feel like I'm not accepted by God. Did you get that? Because I, I feel like my confidence to come before God relies on my ability, when I'm not doing very well, I feel like I have no ability to come before God. You ever feel that way? Well, the flip side means that you... You really have the same posture the Pharisee has, that I have the same posture of a Pharisee too often. The Pharisee didn't see that his pride kept him from God. He wouldn't have remained proud. The thing is, pride and self-confidence, it's, it, it can blind you. We can walk away feeling good about ourselves, be completely unaware of our need. Instead, what we can all do today is, is kind of be a little self-suspicious in a good way say, is there any area where I'm trusting and resting my own, own ability? Do I get really bummed out when I don't do well? If so, that might be an indication that I need to put my hope more in Christ than I do in myself. That I need to put his, my hope in his atoning sacrifice for me. The fact that Jesus made God favorable to us, propitiated us by sacrificing himself once and for all, so that we no longer have to make sacrifice, that Jesus paid for all of our sins so that now we can be fully made at one, atoned for with God. The, the backwards thing about Christianity is that a, a part posture of lowly humility, that is what leads to true confidence in Christ. That's our desire. That's my desire for you today. So you might have more confidence in Jesus today that you might go away completely free because you know that, that you are trusting fully in God's mercy, that you're trusting fully in his grace. I want you to be free from condemnation. God wants you to be free from condemnation. He wants you to be free from guilt. How? Not by trusting in your own ability, not by trusting even your ability to clean yourself up by saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, and here's the good news. You can go away justified if you're trusting in him. You can have a confidence that leads us not to flee God's presence, fearing his wrath and punishment, rejection, but a confidence based on his mercy that can run to his presence when you mess up. Finding mercy and grace in your time of need. Finding forgiveness and strength to actually start to live like you know how to live. When you cry out to mercy, you can be forgive God for mercy, you can be confident that he has made atonement for your sins through Jesus Christ. how good a thing it is that Jesus was and is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We're all tax collectors and sinners. So in response though, let's let's humble ourselves before God. Let's receive confidence that comes through receiving his mercy alone and, and completely jettisoning any confidence in ourselves. Standing confidently before the throne of God is guilty as a tax collector, but made completely righteous and justified because he's atoned for us. There's a a quote by a guy named Daryl Bach that we have for you. It says, the credit of the tax collector 
is that he knew where he stood as he approached God. He wasn't a product of his own achievement, but a result of God's kindness and extending mercy. This way of approaching God alters radically the dynamic of how we see him, ourselves, and others. This way of approaching God alters or should alter radically the dynamic of how we see God, ourselves, and others. Understanding ourselves as the objects of mercy breeds compassion, or it should breed compassion. Do you have compassion to those who are messed up, who aren't like you, who have problems? If not, let me implore you to go and understand the mercy of God. And let's go out seeking to actively show mercy to those that we look down on, despise. Let's go out seeking to show the love and mercy of God to all the people around us who aren't like us, hoping and praying that they would not walk away like the Pharisee, but that they would receive mercy from God. And then as we close, I'm gonna ask the band to go ahead and come up. Matt, if you could bring the band back up. There's an old song, a lyrics, it's, it's called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee. As, as we're singing in response that, Lord, I need you, is the song we're gonna sing in just a moment. As we sing that, I want you to remember that we are hidden in Christ alone, that he is the rock of ages, that, that we are sheltering under, it is his mercy that we, we are trusting in. And then let it create gratitude and thanksgiving in your hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself so that we might not be humbled by you. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place for taking on the punishment we deserve, for being the sacrifice that's pleasing before God. Thank you, Jesus, for making God favorable towards us, for giving us the mercy and grace of God. God, we rely on you, we rely on your mercy, and thank you that we can be confident in your mercy because your son has permanently secured payment for our freedom. So Jesus, might we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Lord, I come.